Welcome back to the program. Almost every aspect of our culture and our economy has been touched by technology and creative destruction. Three areas have lagged behind, and all three are beginning to be addressed and to change. They're finance, health care, and most notably education. Although incumbents still rule in health care and finance, the ground is beginning to shift. But in education, less so. The very fact that we're still debating the merits and sanctity of practices that date to the agrarian age is telling. But change is happening. Throughout the country, small individual efforts are being made, efforts that re-examine the questions and the very foundation of learning, of understanding, and of putting that knowledge to use. One thing, though, hasn't changed. It's that teachers are at the front lines of this effort. For them, too, it will be change or perish. My guest, Elizabeth Green, takes a deep look into change and how to build a better teacher. Elizabeth Green is co-founder and CEO and editor-in-chief of Chalkbeat, a nonprofit education news organization. She's a former Spencer Fellow at Columbia School of Journalism and has written for the New York Times Magazine and other publications. It is my pleasure to welcome Elizabeth Green here to talk about her new book, Building a Better Teacher, How Teaching Works and how to teach it to everyone. Elizabeth Green, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. One of the things that we've always assumed, I think, about teachers is that good teachers, that quality teachers, are just sort of naturally made, that that it's not necessarily something that can be taught. Talk about that first. Sure. So when we talk about uh, improving the quality of teachers in this country, what we're really talking about usually is we say, you know, there are good teachers and there are bad teachers. And what we need to figure out is to how to find more of those good teachers and get rid of the bad teachers. Um, or we assume that there's some kind of character traits that make a good teacher, like they need to be more extroverted, they need to be more charismatic, they need to have a better skill interpersonally at building relationships. Um, But we don't think about uh, teaching as something that people need to be taught to do or something that nobody is born knowing how to do. And in fact, um, it turns out that these character traits, um, none of them can predict who's going to be a good teacher. You can be an extrovert, an introvert, um, warm, withdrawn, and none of that will determine your success. It's much more about skill and it's much less about you're a good teacher or a bad teacher. It's who's doing good teaching and how can we support people to learn how to do that. And what are the skill sets that we are finding that are most effective in the context of the kind of progressive teaching that you write about and that we'll talk more about? So one important skill is knowing not just the right answer, but why students would get a wrong answer to a problem. Um, So teachers actually have to reverse engineer those mistakes that students make, and they also have to elicit mistakes. So and this is all very unnatural. Even mathematicians, when they're given tests to see can they reverse engineer um, common student errors on basic arithmetic, they can't figure it out. So... Uh, It's very unnatural, but it's something that teachers must do. Similarly, um, it's not natural uh, just in adult behavior to try to get people you're talking to to make a mistake, right? We try to paper over mistakes, steer um, clear, accept an answer that might not be perfectly right, but mostly right as as true without pushing back. But all of these um, things 
don't work for teachers. Teachers have to force people to make mistakes and then use those mistakes as learning opportunities. How difficult is this transition, given that of the almost 4 million teachers nationwide, half of them are baby boomers, and and arguably it is more difficult for them to begin to make these transitions? I I think that there's a lot of... um, mindset shifts and skills shifts that are required. That said, I mean, it's remarkable the number of teachers who are able to to figure out the beginnings of what to do on the job on their own. And when they're given access to good training programs that really tap into the challenges they already know are important for them to address and give them materials and ideas for how to solve them, Um, teachers really do seem to respond. So I write in my book about a 20-year veteran teacher, Lorraine McLeod, and San Francisco Unified School District, who, you know, in many ways we would have labeled as a naturally born good teacher, but because she lacked access to the training materials that would have helped her take her teaching game to the next level, um, she was sort of stuck. Her students weren't able to have the high-level classroom discussions that she wanted them to have. They weren't all able to to write the kinds of poetry or essays that she wanted them to write. But when she had access to, um, you know, ideas from others about how she could change her practice, she did very happily. So I think that it's possible. We just need to give teachers the right setting and the right learning opportunities. And what is the nexus between this and the fact that 40 to 50 percent of teachers quit after only about five years? Well, interestingly, I think a lot of us assume, again, that the re- that uh, what why teachers leave the classroom is that they're not paid well enough or um, it's not a prestigious position enough. But in, when you ask teachers, when researchers ask teachers themselves, they often point instead to working conditions as the inciting factor that pushed them out. And I think what does that mean? Well, I think one explanation for what that means, the one that's most compelling to me, is we've asked people to do a job that is very complicated, very challenging, and not only have we not given them the materials and support they need to learn to do that job, we all actively uh, push, make it impossible for, for them to do it. So, for example, um, the structure of work, how teachers have to spend their time. In countries that outperform us, teachers have almost equivalent amount of time outside of the classroom as in the classroom because those countries recognize that teaching requires preparation, requires the study of students' work, the study of other teachers' work, so you can learn from each other. In this country, all of the time, 1,000 hours a year versus 600 in other countries is spent just with students, so there's no time to learn in the first place. So... You know, it's not surprising to me that teachers cite working conditions as a reason to leave the classroom. Um, we're not creating the conditions that they need to succeed. One of the other factors that enters into that is something that you talk about, which is this cult of privacy that surrounds teaching. Absolutely. So um, not only do teachers have no time to leave the classroom, but there's um, a culture that prescribes against it. So one of the people I talked to for my book said when he was in 
inducted into the profession, his first mentor teacher apologized before observing him in a classroom. Um, the, when, when an outside observer comes into an American classroom, um, the response usually is actually to stop teaching altogether and sort of introduce that visitor. Um, and I describe how this is really surprising to uh, Japanese educators who have a very different approach to the culture of teaching. Um, when they came to visit American classrooms, they couldn't figure out why when we have a visitor come to our classrooms does everything stop so that the visitor can be introduced when you know in the Japanese mindset the lesson is this precious um, thing that we should examine publicly together and not interrupt ever so yes we have a culture of privacy and that's also um, that that holds back innovation I want to talk about the Japanese model that you spend quite a bit of time talking about which is really about a much deeper kind of learning. It's almost a, a very focused approach as opposed to the kind of volume approach that you see in an American classroom. That's right. So where, whereas Americans over time have raised the stakes for what we would like students to know and be able to do, um, but not successfully help students to meet those new higher standards, um, in Japan, it's been um, a different story. The same um, change in expectations has occurred, and teachers have managed to meet those expectations by changing the way they teach so that students are not only, for example, in math class, not only memorizing steps to solve a problem, but um, learning the deeper mathematical principles that will help them on the road to algebra and um, mathematical reasoning. So I think that this is really a result of what we're talking about. Um, the, the time, you know, the times are changing, the economy is changing, our expectations for what citizens should be able to know are changing, and yet we don't have the mechanisms in place to help teachers do this increasingly challenging work. And while we don't have the mechanisms in place, one of the things that you point out is that there's been a lot of innovation going on at the margins. And in fact, many of the best practices that we see in places like Finland or Japan and other nations are things that had some roots here. We just don't do them. That's right. Um, it, it's a strange story. I traveled to Japan to try to understand what it could look like to teach math better. I asked a lot of the teachers in Japan, where did you learn these ideas? And they all told me, from you, <laughs> from the Americans. Um, the, I think the reason for that is that there are a lot of um, folks in this country for who for centuries have wanted something more from our education system. Um, in the last 20 years, that community of educators has gotten the support of the business community who whose goals are now aligned with a, a vision of um, citizenry that can't doesn't just follow directions but thinks for itself um, and so there's always been this tradition in our country of hoping for more um, but we have for some reason not managed to achieve our our greatest hopes and dreams and why not, as you talk to teachers, as you talk to administrators, and even talk to the business community, why has been has this been so difficult for us to achieve? 
So I tell the story of Magdalene Lambert, who is a master math teacher who became a an educator of other teachers and now leads programs that educate teachers about this problem. Um, she had a moment of crisis of confidence in her own professional life. She had spent her time, as you say, on the margins, creating a better way, but she when she tried to scale that approach and when others tried to scale her approach um, beyond her own classroom, they met a brick wall. And it wasn't until Magdalene um, herself traveled to another country, in her case, Italy, that she saw what it could look like um, for for great ideas to scale. And um, the the answer is you need a uh, an infrastructure to support teachers learning. You need to think about teachers themselves as students. And that's what countries like Japan and Finland have started to create. They have a common set of expectations for what students need to know, which helps them figure out the common um, set of practices and ideas that teachers need to master. And from there, they can organize teachers' work so that they're able to enter the profession and encounter um, some clear, clearly held uh, best practices, knowledge that they need to know. They can A teacher can study the curriculum, and over time, the teacher will master what she needs to know. Um, in this country, we don't have that infrastructure. A teacher enters the classroom and One year, the curriculum is one thing. The next year, it's another thing. The teacher across the hall from her has one idea. Her principal has another. Her education school mentor has a third idea. We have an incoherent system. And on top of that, we have no time for teachers to grapple with uh, all these conflicting messages. So it's really, you know, honestly a miracle that so many teachers are able to do so so much with this very broken system in the U.S. Of course, there's also been, in, in all fairness, a tremendous amount of pushback from teachers and teachers' unions over the years. This is the kind of thing that Deborah Ball at the University of Michigan found out years ago when she tried to, to implement some creative ideas in California. We absolutely have structural challenges. So, yes, um, another character in my book is Deborah Ball, and she and Magdalene Lampert were math teachers at the same elementary school in East Lansing, Michigan. And this, the even within the school itself, changing the organization of teachers' work so that they actually would have time to watch one another teach and uh, learn about their students' ideas rather than simply spending all of their time teaching the students. Um, that it was very challenging within the rules the school district had set up um, in partnership with the with organized labor um, to change that structure. So yes, there are legal systemic challenges as well. And talk a little bit about some of the experiments on the margin, some of the other experiments that you're seeing around this country. People like Doug Lemoff in in Boston. Yes. Um, so I call this group the Entrepreneurial Educators, and they really began to get get off and running in the early 90s um, along the side, the birth of groups like Teach for America. And they came out of a mission-driven uh, approach that said, we want to change education in America so that it better serves our poorest students. 
And um, Doug Lamov was one such educator. Um, one of the main changes that this group has made is to say, I see that the system is broken, therefore I'm going to try to create my own education system within the public structure but outside some of the restrictions that traditional public schools face. So they created charter schools, and while from the outside often the conclusion is drawn that charter schools have had success in the cases where they do because they operate on free market business principles of, you know, they have no unions and they're tough on their employees. In fact, um, these educators point to different factors that they say were responsible for their success, namely that they created um, the infrastructure that was coherent so that a teacher could come into this school and really learn one common idea about what it means to teach, have time to learn how to do it, and have colleagues who are available to help them learn. Where does technology at the moment fall into the equation in in the people that you're talking about and talking to here and also uh, in Japan, for example? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, throughout uh, throughout American education and internationally, technology, every major technological shift has been heralded as the beginning of a new education system, and every time um, it turns out to be less uh, dramatic change than was anticipated. Um, I think to some degree that's that's true today. So just one example of a pedagogical innovation, the smart board, right? Uh, the new chalkboard that is like a computer and it can store ideas. Um, I think that like any other technology, um, the smart board depends on the, the skill of the teacher who is using it. So I've seen classrooms where teachers use the smart board to imitate some of the the, the challenges that lead to um, not great teaching and not great learning in a traditional classroom. It's just like a blackboard with an on and off switch. But I've seen other classrooms where in the hands of a teacher who's very skilled and well-trained, um, the smart board can make be a blackboard plus. So everything that's great about the blackboard, um, but it also has a memory. So for example, um, what great teachers use the blackboard for is in part to represent the the um, story of the ideas that have developed over the course of one lesson. So this student had this idea, then this other student had that idea, then we built towards this conclusion, and now we know why a triangle is half the size of a square, or whatever the conclusion of the day is. Um, a great teacher can say, not only am I going to record the progression of ideas in one lesson, but because I have this smart board, I'm going to record the progression of ideas over the whole year's worth of lessons. So I've seen teachers say, now let's go back to what we were working on last month, and let's make a connection between um, this idea that we developed on this day about this novel and this idea that we're working on today about this other novel. Do you see a connection here? Um, so again, it, uh, you know, technological change really depends on the hands of those using it. And um, I, I am happy to talk about another area, too, that I think is promising, which is how technology can be harnessed for teacher learning. Go ahead, please. Yeah, um, so I think that one of the interesting developments in the last five to ten years is communities of teachers working together on the problem of how to teach 
using the internet. So through social media, blogs, teachers are creating um, hashtag chat rooms where they um, discuss math teaching problems, English language teaching problems. They share texts to use. Um, they share great problems. They even have created uh, great problem generators. And I think it's a really rich um, area of potential that's very, very bottom-up driven by great teachers who are hungry for to communicate with each other. Talk a little bit about, because it's one of the things that personifies so much of what we've been talking about, the difference in classrooms in the U.S. and Japan and the raucous nature of the Japanese classroom and how that in so many ways contributes to this idea of deeper learning. Sure, yeah. So it's it's um, not what you would expect, not what I expected when I visited Japan. Um, I expected that you know, the, the Japanese students would be more obedient. They're a more homogenous society. Um, you know, ideas that they culturally value uh, community more than individualism and maybe um, rule following more than creativity. And the Japanese have the same idea about themselves versus the U.S. They think of us Americans as the creative, brilliant, outside-of-the-box thinkers who have these vibrant dis- debates and discussions and we're very discursive and they want to be more like us. Well, in fact, the reality is that American classrooms are um, really, they have a monopoly on silence, whereas the Japanese schools um, are so noisy that my interpreter who came with me to help me understand what was going on had to step outside for multiple unplanned breaks because the noise was so loud she couldn't handle it. Um, Their noise was interestingly not chaotic. It, It had its own logic and structure. So either they were taking real breaks to just play and be kids, or they were discussing ideas um, in a heated way. Um, in U.S. classrooms, I think that the idea is that attention is the most important um, capital that the teacher has. So it's all eyes on me, all mouth shut when I say one, two, three, right? So teachers teachers uh, in, in the U.S. more often are saying, shh, They're asking students to be quiet because quiet is seen as equivalent to learning. In Japan, the idea is that learning requires thinking, and thinking isn't necessarily a quiet act. And finally, how does Common Core and the changes that are taking place in that context fit into what you've discovered in building a better teacher? One of the good um, possible outcomes of the Common Core is to add to and strengthen this infrastructure that I'm talking about, the basic building blocks that are required for teachers to to learn to do their jobs rather than arriving and having to reinvent the wheel every time they come into the classroom. The reason it's, it's useful to have a common set of learning standards is imagine what we were talking about before, the life cycle of an average teacher. Um, the common story in American history has been a teacher comes in, and as I said before, they get very conflicting messages about um, what even the purpose of education is, much, no, much less what they should be helping their students learn to do. In that kind of context, it's very difficult if impos- and, and maybe impossible to work together with colleagues on this challenging problem of 
Um, how do I figure out how to teach? If we haven't settled the question of what students should learn, how can we even begin to ask, how do I teach them? On the other hand, um, if we have today uh, what the Common Core envisions is that a teacher will enter um, on day one of her career and be immediately able to have a conversation with colleagues in, you know, whatever the number is today, 45 out of 45 states have adopted the Common Core standard. So all of these states will be on the same page about this question of what do we want students to learn, at least in these two Common Core subjects, English and math. And from there, that opens up opportunity for really working together on the true problems of teaching. So now that we've agreed that it's important to learn uh, multiplication in this grade and add, an, add on these kinds of literacy skills in fourth grade, um, what then does that mean that I should be working on with students today in my class? And what are some good materials that we can all share to help solve this problem together? Elizabeth Green, the book is Building a Better Teacher, How Teaching Works. Elizabeth, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 